What's going on, good people? Welcome to the first episode of Meetings, where I sit with some of the top executives and entrepreneurs, um, and we discuss their journey and discuss kind of how they built their career and what they're up to now. Um, And honestly, I couldn't think of a better guest to bring on the first episode. I had to pull out the big, 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 big guns, and I went out and got none other than the chief executive officer of Volobo 1707. Dia Sims. Dia, well, how are you? Oh, la la. I'm having the time of my life. How are you? <laughs> I am doing really well. I'm doing really well. I think um, if this year has taught us anything, it's to enjoy the little wins, like waking up every morning. Hell right? yeah. and enjoy the overcast days just as much as the sunny ones. I'll take it. You're not going to hear any complaints from me this year. You know? Listen, listen, nobody wants to hear it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no. So, so like I said in the open, I think... Um, you know, I definitely want to get to Lobos, which, by the way, I'm sipping on. Thank you for sending uh, the bottle over. Yes, cheers. as am I. Salute. Salute. <laughs> um, but wanted to kind of start at the beginning. Um, I think you have like a super interesting journey. Um, and wanted to start at the very beginning, which I thought was, I learned a lot about you, even just like looking up in some of the research and in, in this thing. Um, born in Cali, but raised in Queens? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I was born in Monterey. My dad was in the army um, back then. Mm. So the base is now closed. And then we lived in um, what was then West Germany. See my show my real age. And then uh, <laughs> and then I mostly grew up in Queens. How old were you when you moved to Queens? Uh, about six and a half. And you were there to how long? Uh, until I went to college in Baltimore. Oh, shit. Uh, okay. Morgan so State. Queens. Yeah. Are you a Mets fan? Mm. Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm a Yankees fan, but I did grow up near Shea Stadium. Okay, fair, fair. I know you're an old school New Yorker when you still call it Shea, like I do. Oh, that's right. I forgot it's a new. <laughs> I, no, I can't keep up with any of the new names. I'm, uh, I'm all I'm, Interborough, Shea Stadium. I got oh, all the listen, old names. To us, <laughs> to us, it's Shea. It'll always be Shea. No that's disrespect right. to City Field. So you, you grow up in New York. How do you end up at Morgan State? Oh, so, um, yeah, I went on one of those black college tours in high school, a group of us, you you know, you get on a bus and go from New York all the way. Golly, I think we went to Alabama, uh, apply for a bunch of schools and uh, Morgan State actually just offered the most the best scholarship package. I got a few beautiful offers, but they had books, room, lunch, every single thing you could think of. I came home. My parents were like, we got good news and bad news. Good news is you got the best scholarship package so far. The bad news is you don't have a choice. Morgan State was. They let it be known quick. Yes, quickly. Um, Now, were you thinking HBCU all along? I mean, I know now it's like the sexy thing or whatnot, but like, you know, were you, did you want to go historically black back then? Yeah, I was definitely excited to go. I applied to um, Howard, I think Howard and Morgan and Clark were the only three HBCUs I applied, but I did apply to some non-HBCUs as well, like Virginia Tech and University of Maryland College Park. So I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. And even back then, you think coming off of the, different world era and yeah. you know that time that time period there was a lot of excitement and pride in HBCU so I, I mean I was I'm definitely thrilled and it was absolutely the right decision for me now let me ask you like when you're going to Morgan State I mean it's easy for us now to picture a world where there's representation right people such as yourself you know in executive roles um, did you have anyone in any of these fields to kind of look up to the point to and be able to say, you know, outside of home, outside of mom and dad and maybe aunts and uncles and that type of stuff. Did you have anyone you pointed to that maybe looked like you or came from where you came from that was like, oh, shit, that could be kind of cool? I I don't think quite that intentionally, but you're right. I mean, you can't, you know, you you can't be what you don't see. Um, Where I grew up in Queens is a neighborhood called East Elmhurst. Um, 
which famous prison, Rikers Island is there. And also, <laughs> uh, also LaGuardia Airport, speaking of, uh, of New York. And, um, but it was one of the few like solid middle-class black neighborhoods, honestly in the country um, at that time. And when I grew up, I would say between like eight and 10 was when um, Herbie Lovebug, kind of the precursor to Puff, um, Kid and Play, Kwame, um, salt and pepper. They would salt and pepper would actually practice all the time before they were famous in the backyard, catty corner for mine. So my mother would be like, oh, "Hang wow. the clothes," and I would see them doing their routines. And of course, at nine, I wasn't like, "Oh," consciously realizing it, but I absolutely had a front row seat to seeing what was this local cultural hobby um, become this worldwide phenomenon. I remember when House Party came out and was like, "You know, gosh, these are just." You know, people from my neighborhood, now they're in every theater across the United States or seeing play open up a barbershop and start to realize that what felt like culture could respectfully also result in meaningful commerce. Love it. So you go to you go to Morgan State. Do you know him? You know, it's funny. I'll tell you a story. I went uh, and I spoke at University of Michigan. And I know you do a lot of speaking at schools and whatnot. And and, you know, when you do like the the one-on-ones after you get off the stage and yes. I'm talking to the, to the college students, which can all be like my children at this, at this point in my life. <laughs> and they were almost, what I noticed, it was, it was a little funny to me. They were almost ashamed that they didn't have it all figured out. Right. Like, oh, I don't know what I want to do. I'm like, you're 19. You're not supposed to know, you know, like, oh. and I think there's this pressure now for everyone to have everything laid out and figured out when you show up, a young lady from Queens at Morgan State. Do you know, do you have any inkling on what you want to do? Like what career paths? Like, have you given that any major thought at 19, 18 years old? Yeah, I gave it a lot of thought, but my my career path is completely not linear. Like I do, I have a couple of friends that studied something and then went on to be in that field. Most of the people I know, you know, my degree was in psychology, right? So, although I use it every day, um, but, none- <laughs> <laughs> um, but nonetheless, um, I definitely didn't show up. I didn't even know what I wanted to, you know, wasn't clear about my major initially. In fact, I was at the time thinking I would either go to med school or law school and psychology was kind of the compromise degree because it was a, at this school, it was a science degree that I could do. I could go either way. So I, I didn't, I mean, I really didn't know. I mean, shucks, I'm, you know, we're about to make sure this level 1707 is incredible, but eight years from now, if I'm not on a beach, I, I don't know what I'm doing next either. <laughs> <laughs> Speak, speaking of not knowing, the one thing that jumped out at me when I was doing a little bit of research for this was your first job out of college, which I believe was with the Department of Defense. Yes. Yes. How's that happen? Yes. So um, I so this is, you know, people may not remember this, but ways back, the Department of Defense was under extreme public scrutiny because there was an expose that was done saying they were they were recklessly spending taxpayer money like $500 hammers and $2,000 toilets. And it was really meant to show that the contractors um, and the defense side were just too connected and they were not objectively spending taxpayer money. So defense went out and said, we're going to find students with high GPAs that we can train and send this is where I went to something called Defense Acquisition University to be part of this expedited program where they would train us to be super negotiators and fiercely protective wow. of taxpayer value. Um, and it was the best I would do it a hundred times over if I had a chance. I was 21 years old. Um, my first big contract was $120 million. 
I had no idea why they were trusting me with it. I had to basically <laughs> memorize the federal acquisition regulations, which is just as sexy as it sounds. And um, I was absolutely the youngest in any room, the only woman for a mile, um, and absolutely the only minority in every room. And it was the best training ground. Short of actually going to the military, it was the best training ground. Wow, it's funny just to think like, you know, we're all broke when we graduate college, right? So to think that you're being entrusted with managing this budget yeah. and these things, you're like, hey, my bank account is whatever it is. It definitely isn't this, you know? Like, isn't that. <laughs> By the way, it still isn't that. <laughs> <laughs> sure, for sure. Um, so I want to jump around a little bit. I know you had a couple of roles and jobs um, from your first one to the one I want to jump to, but in 05, you end up being an executive assistant for Mr. Sean Combs. And yes. before you before you get into that, I want to say there's this fraternity of people that have been Puff's assistant. And it's almost like this badge of honor. Like if you survive that, like it's like, like I have a person that works at our company who's one of the brightest, youngest, most inspiring people. Just he's super intelligent. He was Puff's assistant. His name is George. Shout out to George. Obviously, you know, Sienna, you of know, course. like so, so I just, there's like a common thread of like just highly motivated people that figure shit out, that get it done. How do you fall into being Puff's EA? So first, what you're saying is true. I, I actually, at some point, there needs to be a story told of the amount of entrepreneurs and brilliance that came out of kind of the school of Puff Daddy, because I don't think he gets enough credit. A lot of like some of the best executives in the industry, you know, came under his tutelage. Um, I was working at a radio station doing advertising sales. And, and if, if, if you don't know, I don't know what it's like now, but back in those days, radio sales was eat what you kill. So I had like all the, all the, uh, excitement of selling crack, but none of the addiction. So you really had to sell, <laughs> know your stuff. So, um, I inherited all the music labels and, um, uh, bad boy records at the time refused to advertise on the station. It was a, a, a new, at the time, hip-hop station, Power 105 in New York City. Uh, at that time, it was very controversial to go up against Hot 97, which is a legendary uh, station in the world and really helped to birth and put hip-hop on the loudspeaker globally. Um, so I was relentless about saying, like, no, you got getting Bad Boy on Power 105. And once I cracked that business, I started to get more and more business. One of the marketing executives, who you may know, Mignon um, Espy, called me one day and said, Puff is looking to hire a chief of staff. Would you be willing to interview for it? And I literally think she just thought we had in common that I sent emails at three in the morning. She was like, oh, y'all get along because you clearly don't sleep either. Um, so uh, I'm always down for like, yep, I'll take the interview. I'll take the meeting. You just never know what opportunities um, will come your way. Super short, five minute interview. You know, Puff, incredible poker face. Great questions, but I walked out. I had no idea what he thought. They called me back a week later and said, Puff wants to hire you, but you've never managed really large teams. Would you be willing to start as his executive assistant? I said, you could call me the janitor. This is what I need to make. I'll be there in two weeks. And I really went because um, I really felt like I could learn from, from Puff. And I really do think like his work ethic is historically unparalleled. And the opportunity to see get a front row seat to this theoretical American dream was what enticed me to become a part of the family. So I definitely want to ask you for a Puff story. So I'll give you some time to think about that. But I, I, I want to ask you about, I think it's amazing, right? You think about like, you graduate Morgan State, you go on, because you go somewhere else after Morgan State, right? Like to get your- Oh yeah, uh, Florida Institute of Technology, I have my master's degree in- Yes, uh, FIT, yeah. right? Yeah, so you go there, you work for the Department of Defense, you know, you work in a couple of different places to, to go and say, hey, you know what? I still have a lot to learn and I can learn from this man. I'm going to go and 
being EA, which I'm sure on some level, your parents probably thought you were crazy, your friends and everyone like, what are you talking about? You know, like just talk, if you could talk about the mindset of a young professional and saying, hey, sometimes it may be viewed as a step backwards, right? But can you just talk about like your thinking and your thought process and taking that role at that point in your career? Totally. I was 20, when I got the offer, I was 29. I was, I was in New York. I was making six figures already. And I had never been an assistant and I had never even had an unpaid internship to that point. Right. So just to give the full context. Um, and when I sent out the email, remember I handled all the music labels of like, Oh, this is my new information. I got two straight hours of calls, people telling me not to take the job. You should not go. Uh, honestly, like, you know, so I think it's important to just reconsider what risk is in your life. I mean, for me, it was early, but I started to feel, uh, I had previously owned a small marketing company and I wanted to do a better job of having ownership of the things that I was creating or impacting. And I knew Puff was just a master at that. Um, and it may feel to you at the time, like, oh, it's a risk to take a step back, if you will, in your, if you think it's a step back, which I don't, because I think every, I think just even for human beings, everybody has something to learn, everyone has something to teach. Um, and I, I'm just a student of, of life and wherever I can go. But even if you view it as a step back, I, I think we all have to redefine what risk even is, right? So I, I, I don't wanna go too much on a soapbox, but I talk a lot about how, you know, in the United States, the average uh, white American is worth 13 times what the average black American is worth. But when you pull out business owners, it's, it's actually drops to a three X difference. Of that group, Black business owners typically are worth 12 times what non-Black business owners are. So you think it's risky to wow. leave your job. You know what I'm saying? I think it's risky not to. You know what I'm saying? So mm. I think when I thought about why would I go work for Puff, it was like, this is about, I'm about to, I'll never be able to learn this much. I can hyper compress a learning cycle. I could go to, I could go to Harvard. I could work at Google. I could go to Princeton. I will never learn as much as I will learn in two weeks with this man. Mm -hmm. It's funny, I, you know, you've met my assistant and we always have these conversations. I'm like, hey, like, and I said this to all like younger employees within our company. I'm like, you're getting paid to go to the best sports and entertainment grad school in the world. Hell yeah. Right. And you can get whatever you want to get out of it. Because it's not like people are saying you can't be in this meeting. You can't, you know, contribute to this brainstorm. So I think there's so much to learn. I'm learning still today, every day from people above me, next to me, you know, that are more junior than me. And I think, you know, I love that mindset of like, no, there's always something to learn. There is no such thing as a step backwards, in my opinion. It's like it's like a lesson I, I, I on learning. I agree. The idea For that sure. learning even is a disservice that we view learning as if it lives in within the confines of, you know, four walls of school. Like everywhere you go, every piece of grass you walk on, every Uber driver you meet is an opportunity to learn. For sure. I, I love that. So I, we obviously always have heard, the, you know, the infamous stories of like the cheesecake and all that stuff. And it's salacious and it's fun and it's whatnot. What is something people might not know about like the genius of Puff that you learned just working closely with him? Um, I'll tell you two quick things. So one is his ear, I think is very underestimated. Um, like his ability as a super producer and understanding how to drive uh, synchronicity of sound is, I, I don't actually don't think he gets enough credit for that. There was, um, we had done a, it was a Ciroc commercial actually, a short, maybe 15 second commercial. <clears throat> And um, we had done multiple rounds of it and I played it for him and he was like, no, it's different. And then we were like, no, it's definitely the same one. I just, <laughs> I just played you like, no, it's not. He's like, no, it's definitely different. And then after him being so insistent, we had the engineers do a comparison and it was off, but it was off by like, I want to say half a second. It was a, it was like a ridiculous wow. difference. And like his level of discernment for his ear, even on the fragrance side, we met with, um, 
you know, what they call like the, the French noses, people who have not been allowed to smell spicy things their whole lives to protect the integrity of their nose. And they were blown away with his consistency of picking the same sense and understanding. So I think he does have a real natural discernment and really can be an arbiter, uh, you know, of, of taste um, when he's geared towards something that he's passionate and excited about. I, don't, I think people underestimate him in, in those capabilities. It's funny you say that because I think that's one of the things he definitely doesn't get enough credit for his level of taste. Yes. Like specifically, like yes. in anything, whether that means rocking the ill suit, the ill shades or a basketball jersey, his level of taste, like I've grown up on, you know what I'm yeah. saying? Like he's raised a lot of us, like especially a kid from New York, you know, like. Um, so you go and you're his EA and then you transition through a lot of people may not know, but Blue Flame, yep. right? an agency, yep. you know, talk a little bit about like your trajectory through Blue Flame. Totally. So um, I was Puff's chief of staff and um, we were starting, he was starting to negotiate the deal with Diageo for Ciroc. And it was basically like him, one lawyer and a CFO. And I went to him going back to my defense days and said, I, I want to be a part of the negotiation team. I don't, you may not remember, but I was trained for two years, you know, by the defense industry <laughs> on this. So he said, yeah, go ahead, ju ju jump in. Um, so we negotiated for nine months, uh, got the deal done. And I went back and said, you have built all of your, you know, legendary brands and events on this marketing. That's really been the lifeblood of this company. And at that time, the marketing team had just shrunk. It was hardly anyone. So I said, I would like to relaunch Blue Flame. I will get it funded and staff it. And he said, yeah, replace yourself as chief of staff and you can do it. So I went, got it funded, built the, built the you know, the new updated blueprint and got shout out to Jamil Spencer for the original. Um, and um and launched it uh, fast because we we did the deal and we launched Rock within like three weeks or less. Um, shot a commercial again. Shout out to G Robeson for helping us clear flashing lights for the first commercial. And then <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, and, then um, and we're out of there. And then we built Blue Flame and not only not only moved Ciroc Vodka from a failing brand to at its height a two billion dollar retail value brand, but we also um, did a ton of other activity. Whether it was Unforgivable Fragrance doing ninety million in nine months or um, just a ton of great um, success. And, uh, and then went on to run the business in its entirety on spirits and then was eventually promoted to be the first ever president of Combs Enterprises because it was usually I want to I, I want to talk to you for a second, Dia. It's actually one of the things, and hopefully he actually doesn't watch or listen to this episode because <laughs> I hate to give Mab credit for anything, as he'll tell you. But it's one of the things I respect and admire most from our mutual friend and business partner, um, Maverick Carter, and that and I see similarities in you in that you had the job already, right? Like you're within, the, you're within the family and you're close to the guy and puff. Most people are happy doing that, right? And, and the goal is to make a little more money, right? And the goal is to go and maybe get, you know, if you're a manager to be a senior manager or whatnot. I always say this about Mav, it's like for him, he always viewed it as like, oh no, I'm in the door now. So what can I do now that I'm here to have a bigger platform to do bigger things? Where'd that come from for you? Like, just even like the ambition, like, you know, almost like the audacious, like even thinking to think that you can go from an EA to running the whole thing. Yeah, I, um, first of all, so much respect for, for Mav at, at uh, one of the things I think we all initially connected on for Lobos was this, I said, we should make this Kipling quote, like our heartbeat, which is for the strength of the pack is the wolf and for the strength of the wolf is the pack. I think. You, your whole crew exemplifies that so beautifully where together it's the Avengers, but apart, you're all superheroes, right? In your own way. Um, 
my own friend group, I feel like, you know, as a, you know, as women, I think exemplify the same thing. And I just very much grew up, my parents were just always on the like, if you could get a B, you could get an A. Like if, if you're going to put the energy and effort into doing anything, there is, there is no point in doing it halfway or small. Do like just you know, just overachieve and, and kill it. Uh, I was not though, I did not come like, I'm going to be the assistant and then I'm going to do, it was not that I've been much more around whatever I'm doing. It doesn't matter what I'm doing. So if it all stopped right now and you were like, Hey, I need you to be the receptionist. I'm going to be like the best receptionist. You know what I mean? Like, so I, my parents are just much more like it, whatever you're doing in that moment, you should just kill it because it's, it's actually only somewhat incremental if you're doing it anyway. Yeah. Um, and the pride you're going to feel and the inspiration, and the light you can bring from a job well done is, I, I think, the nourishment for, for your lifeblood. Yeah, I love that so much. It's like when people ask me like, hey, like about my like career trajectory. And I'm like, hey, I would love to lie to you and tell you that I had it all figured out. And that I knew if I did this thing, it was going to lead to this thing. The only thing I knew was that I could kill what was in front of me. Yeah, exactly. Hard stop. Right. I could do yeah. that. And then if I did that, the right people would take notice. And maybe that would lead to a larger opportunity. And then I'm going to kill that. And maybe that'll lead to, and I think, you know, there's this like, not to be like the, like, get off my lawn old guy, but like, I think there's like a generation of like wanting to have it all figured out before you start. Right. Wanting to have a business plan and all that. And I'm like, sometimes a business plan is just start, you know, have you sensed that in your career? Like at all, like it feels like the, as I look at like you being Puff's EA in 05, and then I believe, I think I wrote it down, in 17, you become president of Combs Enterprises. Yeah. 12 years is not a long time. Like, it's not, it's not a long time at all, like, in what we do. You have to have a different mindset for that trajectory in, in, in just a decade to go from an EA to running the whole thing. Well, you know, I think you started off with saying what underpins that, right, is I, I'm very, very grateful. My mother has um, multiple sclerosis and she's pretty, when she went from like running three miles every morning before taking us to school to being hard to walk, cane, wheelchair, very upbeat, wonderful personality. But she always, she, we grew up in the like, hey, what does not know how to do with finding out? And everything has a solution. So even if she could barely walk, she'd be figuring out how to like sew bananas together, stand on the back of the couch, hold something. She's <laughs> always very solution oriented. Awesome. And I think um, to your point, Sometimes you just have to deal with what's in front of you. I didn't necessarily have a grand plan except to show up and be great at whatever I was doing in that moment. And I and I have always been focused on like, okay, how am I going to create, you know, how am I going to be able to self-generate wealth, right? That's That has always been important to me. But I'm not like, I am not one of these people that, and I respect them who are like, oh, I would have, only thing I was going to do was open the most beautiful gallery. You know what I mean? Central. I, I, I could have easily just had like 50 Burger Kings. You know what I mean? So I just was more so like, I want to right, have the right. freedom and I want to love what I do. And I want to work with people I respect. Those were my guiding lights. And I think young people now, it's a, it's a different dynamic and it, it's facing a world that I can't imagine. Right? It was very different than when I was coming up at that time, but you don't have to know everything. I mean, one, one thing I always say is, all human beings have uh, 99.5% the same genome, right? So like if aliens were looking at us, they would say like, why are these ants, what are they fighting about? So like the capacity, I think you think, I think sometimes young people look and are like, well, I'm not like, you know, Bezos and it might take me 33 years to ever be, you know, uh, playing basketball 24 hours a day to ever get in this, be able to even be on the court with LeBron, right? But, but the capacity is within all of us. So you don't have to think that you have some natural inferiority um, because of anything you've seen or been told, it is it, it lives within you. I've met, you know, we've all met, right? The the some of the best and brightest, the billionaires, royalty, geniuses. 
it's just, you may have to try a little harder, but there's something you're a genius at. And it might just be the tenacity of being you, but you can't do it. It's super interesting because even in my career, I've had like somehow lucked up to be like in rooms with Phil Knight during my time at Nike and be in rooms with Jimmy Iovine and Dre, who, you know, like when I was at Beats and obviously be with Bron and Mav and, and what you notice is like, these guys are like really, 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 really smart and intelligent and all those things. Right. But they hone in on the thing they're really intelligent on. They may not say, Hey, I don't know everything, but the, this thing I know, yes, I've dedicated my life to it. Right. And it's not about like, let me get all this money. And no, it's like, constantly evolving if you ask Mav what his best skill is he'll tell you it's him being curious right so so I've noticed having the opportunity to be close to people that have been what I call just geniuses in their respective fields the common denominator in all of them is just you know an appetite for curiosity and like relentlessness like they are relentless at that thing right and someone who you know as well Omar Johnson I'll give him the credit he was the CMO at Beats he brought me over to beats and he was like, yo, stay in your areas of brilliance. You don't got to know everything. You don't got to figure everything out. Just stay in your areas of brilliance and surround yourself with people that do the shit. You may not do great. You know, that needs to happen. So I think that's one thing I've learned in terms of, you know, I love what, the way you put it up. You don't need to know everything, right? It's kind of like, what's yeah. that one thing you want to focus on? How do you dedicate yourself to that? And like kill everything in front of you. Like, have you sensed that? Is that something you've sensed in terms of like, as you transition from working on Puff Scene to being an executive in, in your career? Yeah, my first, one of my first GMs used to have this huge sign that said, um, narrow focus yields broad results, right? And I do think there's an advantage, especially now we're all, and I'm a, a victim of this too, we all get distracted with this kind of gig economy and you, you know, you're, you're diversifying your, your energy. But I do think there is something special to being a specialist. Um, and all the people you just mentioned, like they, they really excel. They saw with their strengths, even from a business model, the thing that Puff and, and I, and then the whole team would focus on was we knew what we were incredible at. We know how to build brands, sustainable brands. We can make an event. But at the time I wasn't an expert in negotiating glass. We needed the best partner who had all the glass sources, right. Or we're going to go into, you, you, you need to find our whole thing was always get the best in class partner for everything we don't know how to do and mm. then murder what we know how to do. Mm. It also felt like like Puff from the very beginning, like didn't compromise on his vision. Right. Like I, I always think it's one of my favorite scenes in the uh, the bad boy doc when he's yes. putting the show together. And I think it's Harv and James Cruz and everyone's excited to like show Puff like the lighting or whatever. And he walks in. He's like, yeah, this ain't it, dog. This ain't it. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, wow. Like but like just that bar of like, no, I have a vision. I have a bar for what this thing's going to be and hella high water. We're going to hit that bar. Have you always, you know, did, did you feel that from Puff? Like when you were working closely with them in terms of like just having a bar and never lowering that bar for anything? Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, the beautiful thing about Puff um, is it's exactly that. You think that you come back and be like, I, you know, I figured out how to negotiate. We now own planet earth. He's going to see, but he's going to see in you that you have the capability to get two galaxies and say like, I think Dia, I think you could do even more. Right. And that's the thing, because I'm like, I'm pretty, I'm pretty, you know, I'm like pretty confident. I'm like, I think I could do great things. But then he's going to look and be like, damn, no, I think we can do even more. And also he stands on the confidence of the culture and saying that like, we are the injection for making things go. 
right? Um, we, you know, as black and brown people in the United States, we're spending over a trillion dollars. So he stands on the power and saying like, no, we, we deserve the absolute best. I want my consumer to experience the, the glamour, the laughter, the joy, the discernment, the finest fabrics, the most fabulous events, because they deserve it. Uh, that is the inspiration of Puff that, um, to your point, I don't know that he always gets the credit for. No, totally agree. So now I want to get to present day and Lobos. Yes. How does Dia Sims, a young lady from Queens, New York, who goes to an HBCU school, who works for the Department of Defense, who EAs for, I'm trying to remember this, who EAs for Puff, and then runs Puff's business empire, how does Dia Sims end up being the chief executive officer of Lobos 1707 Tequila in Mescal? You know, again, not intentional, right? I, I left Combs Enterprises to get into cannabis initially um, and and still, you know, have a small piece, a company there. But um, this was much more to the point of what we said of being, you know, hopefully somebody remembering an excellent job I did historically, right? And saying like, hey, we had this opportunity. Would you be interested in, in, in working with us? And for me, it was really incredible um, with all respect to the opportunity to work with the genius that is LeBron and Maverick what was even more incredible was the story of the brand and the liquid and the founder and the fact that our founder, Diego Osorio, is his real family, right? Like, you know, it's just a different level of integrity when you're building a business and you're invited to be part of the family business. That's kind of how I felt with Pop. Like, this is Combs Enterprise, his real name. So mm -hmm. it's a different level of like, you know, even when I would talk to people, like, you're spending money. This is not, not that you should ever. We're not taking from PNG. This is a man you look at every day. Like, let's he has six kids. Like, what are we? What are we? That's, right. how, that's how I feel here. Right. It's like, this is this man's family has been in this industry for 400 yeah. years. I'm not going to be the one to mess it up. The, the, the sure. century's old legacy. Um, the amount of care. Uh, our founder is also like a super creative, real visionary, uncompromising in terms of making sure like, no, I'd rather do, you know, 80 rounds with this liquid. Because if I'm going to put my name on it and ask somebody to indulge or spend their money on it in the middle of a pandemic, I want the experience to over deliver. I want them to be blown away. And I think that's the benefit that when LeBron tried it, he, he was blown away and said, I want to be a part of this. And yeah. we were able to be in a position where people wanted to be a part of the brand, right? You can't, you can come up with the best commercial, but there's nothing more natural, right? If, if it's actual a genuine attraction to the story and the liquid, you, you can't fake that. You can't make that up in an ad agency. For sure. I, I don't know if people realize this, they should by now, they should by now, but LeBron, and you know this deal, LeBron's not one of those guys that's going to endorse something for the check. He's got God knows how much money at this point in his career. He's only standing by and next to things he really believes in. Like yeah. He really believes in, he personally enjoys, you know, and you as his business partner, you know, as I, as I pour another responsibly, of course, yes. um, what is it about Lobos? You know, there, there's a million tequilas, right? There's a million tequilas and you've seen it all in the spirits yep. world and all that. What is it about Lobos that is special? So one is um, we have a unique process, right? So our founder's family um, has been in spirits and wine for centuries. And he literally grew up like running in between casts that were filled with uh, Pedro Jimenez wines and brandies. And when he started to do research on his own family, found that his great-great-grandfather was one of the uh, Viceroy Kings of Spain, would go from Spain to Mexico with these barrels filled with brandies and drink it, right? As you do, it's a long trip. And then when they got to Mexico, they would fill it back up, which was then called an agave spirit and take it back. 
Um, and they notice, of course, and this has always been in his family lore that like, well, damn, it tastes incredible now that it's been sitting in his barrel. Now we know this today, of course, the natural aging process of barrels, but um, in tequila, this has not been well explored. So um, at least to our knowledge as of today, we are the only tequila that um, has a PX finish and uses what's called the Solera system, which is typically only used in brandy. So you get the additional um, aging feel in any of our four variants. We even start our first uh, most people, if you drink tequila, if you drink a silver, the one that's clear, blanco or platinum, um, it's completely unaged. Uh, we start uh, with a hoven, which many other hovens are, you know, 400 500 $600. Ours is an accessible price point because we have an unfair advantage um, with our founder's family access and access to these historical 50, 60, 70-year-old barrels. Um, and it just shows up in the liquid. And it's a unique experience. And it's a benefit. Um, while other people, I think, are, you know, God bless their business model, but we're charging, you know, similar to what Casa Amigos charges um, and you get additional value and it shows up. I mean, you can taste it better than I can tell you, but the liquid is, um, is something we're really proud of. Yeah. And that's, you know, I won't mention other brands, but you can look it up. LeBron's gotten out of deals because he's just like, Hey, this isn't really just my truth anymore. I've evolved and I've grown. And, you know, as most of us, you should be into different things at 35 than you were at 25. Yeah. Right. LeBron wanted to do this, right? LeBron, you know, when he was in New York recently, like LeBron legit carries a bottle yes. of yes. with him. Like, it's not, it's not for a social media post. It's not for any of that stuff. It's like, no, it's a real thing, right? Um, one of the things that like I love besides the the liquid itself, which I think is incredible, um, is building a bigger table and, and and just the thought process behind that. Can you talk a little bit about that, please? Yeah, so um, the campaign we went out with and really just a heartbeat of the brand is if there isn't enough room, we build a bigger table. Uh, literally in our office in the Lower East Side in New York, our founder actually like built this crazy long table where we host dinners and tastings. Um, and even down to our office in that spirit, um, you know, we're, we're fortunate, we're blessed. We have great backers. We're not, we're financially stable, right? We could have gotten the swankiest offices in the city. Uh, but we were very intentional about, we need to be immersed in culture and culture changes by the second. So we're like, what's the last like real New York neighborhood, right? The lower, <laughs> one of the few yeah. in the city is, is LES where so much yeah. culture comes out of, um, our office, which, which by the way, dear, not to interrupt you, yes. we didn't rehearse this. You know, I'm born and raised in the Lower East Side. No, I didn't. I didn't even. We did not rehearse this, guys. You heard it. You heard Dia, the expert, say it herself. I just want to make sure they heard it. That's all. Continue. I swear, please. I did not know that. That's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you. So I'm. You know, listen. It's, it's just true. Truth is easy to tell. And um, so our building. I mean, our, our office space was a studio, a uh, beautiful studio, and we built out um, a screening area, huge stage, big bar. And we've invited, it's obviously the pandemic right now. We said, but when things open up, community board, please hold your meetings in here. All the bartenders need to come do test, you know, come do it in here. You're an artist and you can't uh, afford to rent space. You can come stream at our stage or you need to have your gallery pop up. The lighting here is incredible. Come do it here. Um, because we, we, we mean what we say. We're gonna kind of want to walk it like we talk it and really show up from everything in our office to the fact that we're 50% women and 60% ethically diverse in our staff on purpose. I, I also um, and, I, and I know the whole this whole group all is beautifully like minded in this way. Is that what it means to build a bigger table is legit diversity across the board, whether it's 
Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, the American dream his way, coming from Austrian, you know, proud Republican being a governor, to LeBron James, who's came from Akron and built, you know, and built through the discipline of a champion, all that he has today. That's actual legitimate diversity, which I don't, I think is getting lost in this crazy banter and polarized country we're in right now. That That's not, when we say build a bigger table, we literally want to invite everybody because we won't be able to progress. Like you can't progress women's rights without men being involved, right? When we talk about building a bigger table, it is legitimately inclusive. And what we want to build beyond an incredible commercial success is another phenomenal example of that, an appropriate dedication to DNI and actually being inclusive and welcoming people in is good for business. It's not instead of in the not disaggregated points of view. One of, one of the things, you know, I was telling someone this other day, they were asking about like my journey and whatnot. And they asked me what was one of the most eye-opening moments for me. And I said, one of the most eye-opening moments is when you realize that like you are calling the shots and there's no safety net. And I remember probably four or five years ago, Mav and I had started our first company together and robot, our agency. And I asked him something and he was like, well, what do you want to do? It's your call. And I was like, oh, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> like, wow. Okay. I thought I could just like give some, like a point of view, you know, like, and ha- what has that been like for you? Right. It's like in launching a brand that, you know, isn't just some startup that the name means nothing. Like you said, it's, it's a family business. You being the chief executive officer and being tasked with like charting, you know, the, the path, um, what has that responsibility felt like for you as an executive? Um, it, yeah, it's an awesome responsibility, and I, and I, I welcome it. I think it's, um, I really do. I, um, this is a old example, but it was, a, it, was a, it was kind of a crystallizing moment, like the one you just described, where <clears throat> when I was back at Combs Enterprises, we had launched Ciroc Peach, and so that particular variant became like a case like a case study in terms of how many how much sales it was doing more sales by itself than like whole vodka portfolios um and but but you know at working at combs enterprise the pace is so fast a lot of times you don't really you you're doing so much that you don't actually realize what you're doing we were on a tour a market tour we were in atlanta and we went to this liquor store and the guy came to me and said he was like near tears he said i, I what you did with Ciroc Peach, like I, I pay for my daughter's college this year off of that. Like, wow. And like, I just, honestly, we had just been so head down focused. It didn't even occur to me that like, you know, you're thinking about what you're doing, but like, this is one liquor store owner has one store, you know, outside of Atlanta. And it's just like, you realize the, the awesome responsibility of what you're doing. Right. And I'll tell you, there's times even today, I'm always like, well, I love this industry. I love celebration, but I do want, I do want to make sure I'm having the most meaningful impact I can have. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but moments like that, you realize like, no, actually, you know what, we, this is the right thing. Like we can help people have more jobs and have responsibility and change the faces of a wealthy industry. That to me was like a goosebumps moment. Let me, let me ask you, I was talking to Farah, you know, Farah left. Yeah, of course, Clutch, we're Clutch, who we yes. all love who's maybe yes, the best incredible. human on earth. Oh. Right. She's amazing. Um, And she said something that was super interesting to me. She said that she didn't want to necessarily be known as a top woman exec. She wanted to be known as a top exec. And it is part of her mission to make sure she brings more women along. Right. You as you know, one of the few, you know, women chief executive officers, as well as, you know, black and brown 
you know, women chief executive officers. Do you feel that responsibility? What's your point of view on the woman and the responsibility? Or do you just want to be known as an ex- as an amazing exec? No, I don't have a problem. I'm I might oversimplify things, but I am a black woman, right? So I have no, I happily lean into if someone says she's an incredible black woman executive. I, there's no question if somebody does the math that that same point of view will is on any field of any group of genders or any ethnicity, right? So I think like I, I'm very math based in that way in terms of like, yeah, objectively it is, but I'm very proud to be doing that as, as, a, as a black woman. What I don't want to be is... Um, the first anymore, right? I want to. I want to mm. be cheering to the last of first. So, what's most important to me is bringing in as much um, diversity, really building a bigger table every single place I can, and reminding people over and over again that you know diversity is good for business. That women CEOs return three x on average. <laughs> what other do so? Like, let's. Like, I mean, like, I, my thing is like, it's a fiduciary disservice. Like, if you look around and you don't. Oh, you don't have any minorities or women. Are you just robbing your company right now? That's terrible. He was like, no, I got real math. This yeah. Real math. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's amazing, dear. Let me ask you, what should we I have? Two more questions before I let you get out of here. One is, you know, with so much going on, you know, and I, I actually sent you a text on this. I'm like, yo, they have so many people hitting me. Like, where can I find Lobos? Like. I want to buy it. I'm not asking for anything free. Where can I find it? What should people know about Lobos? Yes. So first of all, it's been an incredible launch. The reception has been amazing. We were selling out in three to six days, all up and down Southern California. We'll be in 21 states by um, the end of September. We just announced a a national distribution deal with Southern Glazers. Um, You can get it online at reservebar.com or siptequila.com. And then we post pretty regularly city by city where we are in New York, in Miami, um, in L.A., uh, and we'll be coming to cities I get a lot of requests for, Atlanta, D.C., Michigan, and of course, we will be in Ohio in the next 60 days. So be in Ohio. <laughs> that, is, that is urgent. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. So but my last question for you is, and I asked you, we, we kind of started with this. You know, when you were coming out of Queens, there wasn't a ton of representation, right? And I feel like, you know, people such as yourself are at the forefront now of like, there's a young lady and a young boy in Queens right now that's like, oh, that's a thing. I didn't know that was a job. I didn't know that was a thing. That's someone that not only looks like me, but comes from where I come from. What advice do you have to that young 17-year-old that's trying to figure it out, trying to get into business, you know, may not know exactly how, you know, any advice you would give to a 17-year-old DSMs? Yeah, listen, I think just don't, you know, take more risk, start early, start often and own something like get Mm. with two of your friends, buy a small piece of property somewhere, Airbnb and out, go to the local bakery and see if you see they may need a little see if you can own a little bit of that. Go start your portfolio, even if it's just a five, you know, get five stocks somewhere. But um, if you know, as a community, when you think about how we have the power of diversity, we have enormous spending power, but we have a limited ownership power. So I think it's important. It doesn't matter. At 17, go figure out what you can own now. Start putting that money, the amount of money you can make, the difference between some of us. I started, you know, probably later, late 20s, 30s, in terms of really investing in a portfolio. If I would have started at 17, it would have been, you know, significantly more money. It doesn't matter if it's five, 10, 15, $100. Start figuring out what you can own because that's what, that's what, that's what generational change starts. Yeah, so talk about that a little bit, because I think that's so important. I think sometimes there's a misconception of like, well, I don't have a ton of money, so I'll wait till I have a ton of money to go and invest and own something. What you're saying is like, no, 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 like 
you at 17, 18, 19 can scrounge up whatever you have and you and two, three, four friends can go and, and, and you know, make a run at this thing, even if it's just nominal at the beginning. Even just nominal. Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, you that's the beauty of this time. Information. You can get any information you want. You could YouTube how to start any company. Um, that's a blessing. So lean into that. And you don't have to wait to be like, oh, I have to build this with bricks and I need $10 million. No. Get with your friends. Figure out how to get $1,000. You'd be surprised. Like your local pizza guy, you might be able to go and say like, listen, you, you know what I'm saying? There's five pizza shops. But me and my friends, we know we can get 100 people in our neighborhood to go just to your pizza shop. We got we got $1,000 cash. We got $4,000 sweat equity. We want to have 10% of all the dividends moving forward, but we're going to bring you these new customers. Like there's, And then you might just set up a, a check every quarter from your local you know, pizza company. Just be creative about where your income comes from, which I think this generation is actually doing better than my generation was. You're really creative about it, offering your services. But now think through what can you own that will have recurring revenue for you. Can't think of a better way to end this pod. Dia, I know you're super busy. I so appreciate this. I still am looking forward to when we can enjoy a Lobos in person. Yes. When the world absolutely. opens up a little more. Yes. Appreciate your time. I will cheers to you. Cheers. Salute. Love you, Dia. legacy, Lobos. Ladies, yeah. ladies and gentlemen, Dia Sims.